take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31 will be our text this morning. Uh, this is not a Mother's Day sermon, but rather Mother's Day is providing a, a, a context for us to simply allow God to address maybe one of the most pressing issues of our day. And give me give you an example of that. If I could go back uh, 30 years from now and go back in time and I could speak to my grandfather and ask my grandfather, Grandpa, what are your pronouns? <laughs> if I could go back in time and ask my grandfather or tell my grandfather, you know, Grandpa, I, I feel like a, a woman trapped in a man's body. He would say, boy, what is wrong with you? You need to be locked up. And we, we laugh, but actually that's a very pressing and serious issue that we're inundated with right now. And actually what I find so ironic about Mother's Day is Mother's Day is actually a beautiful reminder of God's design, purpose, and creative genius that stands in direct antithesis to our current cultural moment. I don't have to give you shocking or extreme examples to demonstrate what that cultural moment is. You, you can just go into a Starbucks or you can go into a Target, wherever it may be, and you're confronted with this face-to-face. And our children know what this current moment is like as well. In profound ways at a young age in which I would not have been familiar at their age. And our children spot the abnormalities and the problems of the moment very clearly because they're naturally revealed that there's a problem that we see. Mother's Day and Father's Day actually provides the opportunity for us to ask, what does the Bible say about mothers that are, that is females, that is women, what does the Bible tell us about fathers, that is men, males, and how should we think about gender as Christians? What does God say? And as we look at these verses this morning, we'll see that the overarching theme of the creation of humanity with gender is that God has a specific care and thought and purpose behind how we are brought into this world. And if we doubt that, then we doubt God's care and provision for us as people. Actually, what we will see in Scripture is any disordering of it is a direct rebellion against God and a rejection of His purpose for our lives. So let us hear the Word of God. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. This is God's Word. Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit 
you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that he had, what he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. This is God's perfect inerrant word, and I want us to see in this passage three primary things, and that is that God creates humanity. That is the substance of humanity. That is what we are made of. God creates humanity in his image that is speaking of the special nature of humanity, and that God creates humanity with gender, and that is speaking of God's purpose for humanity. Now, how does God create humanity? We see that God, in the creation story itself, actually creates in two different ways. God creates by commanding something from nothing. We read in Psalm 145, verse 5, For he commanded, and they were created. So how did God bring the heavens, the earth, and all that exists into creation? He spoke it into existence. God simply speaks, and it came to be. Before the creation of the universe and the creation of matter and the creation of anything that exists, there was only God. To doubt that would mean that if we came about through some form of cosmic explosion, you have to answer, how did something come from nothing? The only answer to that is that there is an all-powerful, all-knowing God that spoke and brought everything into existence, just as the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God creates from nothing, but he also does create from something. In fact, we see that humanity itself is created from something, but that something that man and woman are created from is something that God created already himself by speaking it into existence. And we see the specific creation of man in Genesis chapter 2. As you're reading through Genesis chapter 1 and you see the the description of the days of creation, if it ever gets confusing what's taking place in chapter 2, chapter 2 is a detailed description of the sixth day of creation. It's not another creation account. It's actually a detailed description of what happens on the sixth day. And we get to see what God did in creating Adam and Eve. In verse 7 of chapter 2, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And then in verse 21, we see the creation of Eve. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. God says, let us create man and that God created Man, that word create, it's 
can also be translated carve out. I want you to think of the imagery of carving something out. You ever take a knife and take a stick and just whittle it away? There's not much intention in that. You don't have anything except for you're just whittling away. That's not carving something out. Carving something out is to take a substance and to have a picture of what that substance is going to be when you're done carving it out. And that's what God does with this lump of mud is that he has intention, he has planning, he has thought, and he has purpose. And when you read the creation account of Adam and Eve, it stands, it, it stands out in an emphatic placement of God's special work in creating man. Everything else God just spoke and it came to be. But the God without hands, because He is spirit, is picturing Himself here, giving us the picture of Him taking with His hands, forming man, and forming Him and designing Him exactly how He intended to do it. It's not an impersonal creation of just looking at the dust and saying, man, rise out of the dust, but it is rather God's personal and special care of forming Adam. And then he gives Adam an abject lesson. He has all these animals paraded before him, and Adam really quickly realizes, oh, there's no one like me here. That was a test for Adam. It was to teach Adam. And God then puts him in a sleep and does the same thing, where he takes a form, a material, and he has fit for him his wife that is formed from him. And the, the, the picture is, is so beautiful because something from Adam is missing. And only together are they brought back to completeness. That is God's design for male and female is that, cre- uh, that, that perfect unity that God brings about. God spoke everything else into existence. But with Adam and Eve, we see his intimate and personal nature, which shows us that mankind, humanity, male and female, is important to God. Notice the Trinitarian formula in verse 26 of chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Notice the plurality. Let us in our after our likeness. That is a revelation that our God is triune. That the triune God, in His infinite wisdom, created man. It's showing us that the triune God creates man. Again, showing us the the personal care that God places into the making of man. And it's interesting that there's this divine council that takes place as if they are having this discussion. Let us do this. You don't see that with any other act of creation. You don't see that with the creation of the stars, the moons, or the animals, or anything else. There's no divine council that takes place. But God reveals to us that there's this divine council that takes place in the creation of man. You think about it when Adam is created... 
and he sees all of the other animals that are not like him. He has intimate fellowship with, with God. He has worship with God. I, I, I wish we could know what Adam thought, and while we can't know exactly what he thought, I think David captures it in Psalm 8, where David looks at the majesty of all of nature. He looks at the beauty of the skies. He looks at the beauty of the stars. He looks at the beauty of the mountains and the trees and all of the glorious things that have come. And he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? I happen to think that that was probably Adam's thoughts too. Is that as he looks around this beautiful garden that God had created for him, he looks at all of the things that God had provided for him, and he provides for him a perfect helpmate, his wife Eve. And he says, what, what, what is man that you are mindful of him? You see, what we have to get into our heads, because society has told us the opposite, you are created by God, and therefore you have value. There is value upon human life because that is the special act of God's creation. That is the pinnacle of God's creation is the sixth day. That changes how we think about everything. And that is totally counter to what our society says today. Not only do we see that God creates humanity, the substance of humanity, but you see the special nature in which God brings about humanity, and that is that we are created in God's image. And it's wonderful that three times it says between verse 26 and 27 that we're created in the image of God, which is saying that mankind is different from everything else. This is showing us the uniqueness of humanity and that they're created in the image of God. So we're not on the same level as animals. It's amazing to me today that animals have been elevated to a place above humanity. The trees have been placed at a level above humanity. This actually forms how we should think. We should think of what benefits man without destroying that which God has given us. We don't think that way. Because a tree's not created in God's image. Fido's not created in God's image. You sitting here this morning are created in God's image. He formed you and designed you exactly how you are. Now, what is the image of God? I thought the, the, the book that, that I read to the children said it really well. We have this capacity to love. But what is the image of God? Well, let me say what it's not. God does not have a physical body. John chapter 4, verse 24. God is spirit. Yet one commentator says, yet the human body was the most apt form to show God's image. This is why Calvin says God's glory is contemplated as in a mirror in the human body. 
So what does it mean, though, if it's not the physical body to be created in God's image? What we should see is some things that that Scripture points out is that we have this special connection with God. God is perfect. God is pure. God is holy. God is righteous. And while we can say we're not apart from the righteousness of God, we have a moral capacity. Romans chapter 2 Verse 14 says this, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, notice what that says, they have not been given a special revelation of God's law, but God's moral law is written on the heart of every single individual. This is why every society that has ever existed has some some form of moral code and judicial code to enforce it. Because God has revealed His law upon the heart of every human being. You can think of a stamp. God stamps His law on every heart. I just watched part of a debate between a pastor and an atheist, and the pastor said, is murder and rape, is it wrong? And the guy said yes, and he said, well, by what standard do you say that? And he said, well, it's subjectively wrong because as a society we've determined it wrong. What happens when society says it's no longer wrong? See, we actually have an objective truth that it's wrong to murder, and we all know it's wrong. We we actually don't have to read the Ten Commandments to know that. God's printed it upon our heart, and that's why we have always said it is wrong to murder. We have this morality within us that bears the image of God that's not seen in any other animal kingdom. You see that man is creative. In fact, if you survey... In Genesis chapter 4, the line of Cain begins to develop things. Develop things for livestock, develops music, develops things that are made of bronze and iron. We have this creative aspect about mankind. God created. We also create as well. That separates us from the animal kingdom. Don't give me the example of the monkey that can type something as creating. There will never be a monkey or an ape that ever writes like William Shakespeare or composes like Bach or sings like Placido Domingo. It just won't happen. We have this creative aspect of us, but there's also this idea of dominion. God called and named his creation. You'll notice that in the Genesis account, that God, as he creates things, names it, but he doesn't name the animals. Who names the animals? Adam names the animals because Adam was to have dominion over them. He brings the animals to him. And verse 26, when we read in our text that he was going to create them, it's connected to that idea of dominion. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over fish of the sea. So in, in some ways, that idea of dominion and that, that sovereignty that God has over all things is given to Adam in a limited form. In Psalm 47, in verse 2, we read of this, For the Lord God Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. That is speaking of God's sovereignty, 
but then he gives and delegates and makes Adam responsible for having as his vice regent to be one that subdues all of creation. What does it mean to subdue creation? He's told to, in verse 28, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion. The word subdue means to tread over it with foot. So God who governs all things through His Son gives Adam the responsibility in limited form to have sovereignty. He says, this is your creation. This is yours to be over. We could also say rationality, reason, intellect, relationship, mercy, planning. All of these things separate us from everything else that exists. Needless to say, if you are sitting here this morning, you are created in God's image and are unique above all of nature. There's something special about you that's not in anything else that you can find. And there's something we have to recognize about this, is that if we're created in God's image and we're marked as special, we're marked as unique, it means actually how we treat one another really matters. Because how we treat one another is a reflection of what we think about God's image in someone else. In fact, after the flood, we read this in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So even after the fall, mankind retains the image of God. All of mankind. In this command here to Noah, there's nothing. There's no religious connotation. It's civil instructions to mankind. If there's to be murder, there's to be a judicial code for that. Why? Because man is created in God's image. And so we, we can say, okay, we can understand that. We, we can't kill people because they're created in God's image. But is that all the Scripture says? No, Scripture actually says this about God's image and how we speak. In James chapter 3, verse 9, with it, this is the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the image and in the likeness of God. In other words, not only does God's image prevent us from murdering one another, it prevents how we are to talk from what to one another. Ever think about that? What this means is that all people, all individuals, every single human being must be treated with integrity. What does that mean? Well, the scriptures tell us you treat man with just balances and skills with all people in all situations that we are to treat people justly. That's what it means. No one has more of the image of God in them than someone else. Now, in Christ, the image is restored more brightly, but everyone has that image of God in them. Everyone must be treated without exception, acknowledging God's image in every single individual. Because this fact is disregarded, we today live in a culture of death. Our society drinks up disregard for human life, whether it is in the womb or it is at the end stages of life. 
Our society has disregarded human life. Our society has said what is valuable and what's not valuable. You see abortion, you see violence. And it's not new. You can read the Old Testament and it was rampant there. In fact, many would sacrifice their children to the God of Moloch. But we see it particularly acute in our culture where we say if you're not just like this, then you're not valuable. Whereas God's word actually says you are valuable because you're created in God's image. Why have we gotten there? Well, you can say a satanic influence, but I'll tell you why it's particularly acute in our culture is because we've been told for the last hundred or so years that you are a cosmic accident. Why did Marxism spread throughout Europe and now spreading through the United States, which has killed more human lives than any other philosophical ideology, by the way? Joseph Stalin made Hitler look like a choir boy in terms of killing people. It's interesting, Karl Marx drank up the idea of Darwinianism. It fitted his social agenda to remove God and place man as his center. So if you're told that you're just a cosmic accident, what value of life do you have in you? You have no value. But the Bible actually tells us something different. The Bible very clearly tells us that we are created in God's image, that we are the pinnacle of creation, and that all people, without exception, are created in God's image and are to be treated as such because God created us. That even means that we are to treat people with integrity, with whom we disagree with, and even when we disagree with them strongly. The third thing we see in the text is that God creates humanity with gender, and that is with purpose. God creates male and female as gender-specific in order to fulfill his first command, be fruitful and multiply. And any departure from the reality of male and female, guess what you can't do? This is very basic. This is not difficult. You can't be fruitful and multiply. Period. Mankind propagates the image of God through fruitfulness. And in the garden, it was simply that Adam and Eve would have children, and as they had children, God's image would spread. That still happens today, and our goal, our mission that's been given to us by Christ is to see those image bearers where there's a broken image, is to share the gospel with them, that that image of God may be restored in all people brightly in Christ. That's our mission. That's our goal. That's the Great Commission. Fruitfulness is impossible apart from gender. And this is a simple biological fact. Gender is essential and it cannot be discarded. Medically, it actually matters. Regardless of what someone says they feel, it actually matters if you were in a traumatized situation requiring medical assistance. It's a biological fact. Dominion is impossible apart from gender. 
fulfilling the role that God has given us to subdue. God gave Adam dominion over the animals, but after declaring that all things were good, he says, it's not good that man should be alone. And so what did he do? In order for Adam to fulfill his role, God created Eve. Meaning this is Adam could not fulfill his role apart from a female. He couldn't do it apart from her. He couldn't be who he was meant to be for who he was created to be apart from it. This is why in creation God says it's all very good, but then with Adam he says it's not good that you're alone. The command to have dominion and take dominion is impossible apart from the idea and the gift of gender. To reject this fact of nature and this fact of Scripture is to call what God has called good to actually call it bad. Uh, we, we live in, in such a unique time of, of history where this very basic concept is being rejected. And God tells us that this time would come. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe! As R.C. Sproul says, as we don't ever grasp the significance of the word woe. This is calling down a curse upon us. That is to say that we are under a curse. When we get to a point where we call good evil and we call evil good, we are under the curse. We are under the curse of God's wrath. I know I've used this illustration before, but I want to use it again because it's relevant. We no longer live in the Seinfeld uh, sitcom where we can say, ah, not that there's anything wrong with that. We actually have to embrace it now. We have to say this rejection of what God has designed in His perfect nature. It's not that we can just say, hey, you do your own thing, I'll do my own thing. No, what culture is demanding is you must accept it, you must love it, you must embrace it, you must support it, and if you don't, you're nothing but a bigot. That's what our culture tells you. So contra to what God's word actually says, we live under that curse. But what we have seen here is that God actually designed mankind, humanity as a whole, with a purpose, and part of that purpose is realized through gender. All that goes into gender that is biologically distinct at conception. When does life begin? When does life begin? Conception. It begins at conception. We can't give that up. We stand on that truth. We plant our flag in the sand on this fact. Life begins at conception. If we give that up, we embrace a culture of death. Gender 
is realized at conception, and it's fixed. It's a fixed reality in nature. In fact, we see this in the animal kingdom. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 19, it says, And of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep alive with you. Why two? Why two, God? Why should we have two of every kind of animal? They shall be male and female. Meaning, the furtherance of humanity is not possible apart from the fact of gender. It's embedded in nature. And let me just say, don't be afraid of using the natural argument in our culture today. There's a very clear natural argument that we can use that is revealed to us in nature about the fact of gender. God reveals it in nature. But you consider what God teaches us about our design when he, and I want to read all of these passages. You don't have to turn there because I'm not going to wait for you. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. This is speaking of God's special creation. You might say, well, that's of, that's of Jeremiah. Well, we read also in Isaiah 44, verse 2, Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you. From where? From the womb. And that same God will help you. Isaiah 45, in verse 9, we read this, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. And most beautifully, is Psalm 139 that we begin our scripture reading with, our call to worship with. In Psalm 139, verse 15, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, speaking of being formed by God. And again, even after the creation of Adam and Eve, where Adam and Eve are pictured as being created by God's hand, the psalmist tells us that you were created by God's hand in the womb. The same very picture of Adam and Eve's creation in the garden is the same picture of your existence in your mother's womb. That is a wonderful reality. It says intricately woven. That's a, a picture of an embroiderer weaving things together perfectly, making a work of art. The idea of gender is fixed in nature. It's also fixed in law. What, what do I mean by that? Well, you could see in Leviticus, you can see through there that there was actually different laws for childbirth depending upon the gender, how the purification ceremony would take place. You see in Deuteronomy 22, verse 5, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. What's interesting is that we don't have to be told in any society, this is how men dress and this is how women dress. Why? Because men and women are different. And God says, don't trifle with that. Don't trifle with that. Don't disregard what is natural. It's naturally revealed. There's no prescription that we're given on this is how you dress like a man and this is how you dress like a woman in the Bible because it assumes we will know. 
we dress differently. By the way, this is most interesting to me. I had never thought about it until this week. But gender follows us even when we're disembodied. And what do I mean by that? You know that if we were to pass now and you're in Christ, your soul will go to be with Christ and you will wait for the resurrection of your glorious body. But even before you are reunited with your glorious body, we are told in Scripture that the idea of gender follows you. In fact, you see it so clearly in the transfiguration of Christ. In Luke chapter 9, in verse 30, it says, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Why does the Scripture tell us that Moses and Elijah were men? Gender is how we are created, and we never leave it. The way God formed you in the womb, the way you were intricately woven together by God, that remains forever. It will never change. The creation of male and female are the only acts of creation in which the personal intimate design of God is shown in Scripture and a clear purpose is given. All other aspects of creation are for the purpose of providing for the man and woman, which must lead us to say, what is man that you are mindful of him? You notice the language. It says Yahweh in chapter 2. You'll notice all caps of Lord in chapter 2 of Genesis in verse 5 or excuse me, verse 7, that Yahweh Elohim, that is the sovereign supreme God is what those names mean, formed, that is the, the work of a potter, formed them together. Now you think about in our society today, what is the, what is the pot saying to the potter? The pot is saying to the potter, why would you make me this way? The absurdity of it, is captured in Isaiah 29, 16. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing should say of its maker? He did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it? He has no understanding. But yet that's what is so often said today. Isn't it? A rejection, clearly, of what God has done. It's the absurdity of questioning what God has has created. Notice the personal nature is that God breathed. God personally animates mankind. He breathes into them the breath of life. And then with the creation of Eve, again the language, Yahweh Elohim, that is the supreme sovereign God formed her by taking one of the ribs of Adam and built, made, the same language of made is the same language that those building the Tower of Babel said. Let us make this. Let us build this, which speaks clearly of their intention, design, and purpose. When God designed Eve, He designed her with a specific purpose, with thought. We cannot escape the fact that in God's perfect design, the idea of gender is actually essential. What happens if we deny this reality, that this is a fixed part of reality? If we deny 
what God's word says on the issue of gender. And we capitulate to our society right now. What we have denied is the presence of a sinful action. And if we have denied something as being sinful, guess what we have done? Is we have denied the opportunity to tell them that they're in need of forgiveness. If we deny what the scripture says, we in effect deny the gospel to people that are created in God's image and need the gospel just as I do. The other thing is is this, is the order and design of creation in male and female. If we deny this, we, we, we actually deny the reality that male and female is the only means that God used in bringing us salvation. What do I mean by that? How was the Messiah brought about? You might, you might say, well, put into Mary's womb. Yeah, but how did you get to Mary? Did Mary just pop up out of the dust? Or do you have generation after generation after generation of people that are coming through a line that God has chosen and God has designed that are being fruitful and multiplying until you get to Mary? Gender was actually part of our plan of salvation. To deny that and deny what God has fixed in place biologically is to deny His very means of bringing us our Savior. So what do we do as, this, as Christians? As Christians, we must be absolutely clear on what the Bible teaches and not afraid to speak truth. We must be also be able to point out what is naturally revealed and in no way contradicts scriptures. As Christians, we must never allow the normalization of our current moment to lose its shock when we see it. But remember that all people are created in God's image and that we are saved by grace alone when we're shocked by it. As Christians, we must walk in purity of mind, heart, soul, and our actions and all things. And any deviation from one man, one woman for life is a perversion of God's plan. Let us lead the way as the church on that. So what is the problem today? The problem for this particular issue, that's crisis that we're facing in our society, ultimately comes down to this, is I'm dissatisfied with who I am, I'm dissatisfied with how God has made me, and so I'm going to change myself in order to bring happiness. And so what we do is we make ourselves into an idol. That is what's happening today, is people have made themselves as an idol. The problem is, is that the more that they try to find contentment in that with which they're discontent, what what ends up happening inevitably? They become more discontent. They're trapped in a cycle of sin. We have to be able to speak clearly the gospel that will set them free. But what is discontentment? I certainly wish I was a few inches taller. I thought I could play basketball. The problem is, is though, my height had nothing to do with me playing basketball. My inability to play basketball is what had to do with it. We, we can all be easily discontent with who we are and want to change things. But particularly what I think we see right now, and let this be a corrective moment in our culture, one thing I see 
in our culture that breeds contempt with the human body and with who we are as people is the prevalence of immodesty. You might think that's a weird connection. But we live in a society that has a scorn for modesty. And it's even in the church, but immodesty actually breeds contempt for the human body because it's no longer seen as special, but rather as something to flaunt. Both men and women are susceptible to this, but it seems that it's more often manifested more in women and then exploited by men. So how do we fight this current cultural moment? Let us think about this in our own selves and our contentment as human beings and how we were created, is that we're created in God's image, that we were designed by God. But listen to what Peter says. Rather than trying to continually shape and reshape what God has perfectly designed, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. How often do we try to cultivate that beauty? of the gentle and quiet spirit. Beauty is seen by many as something that fades. It's external. Why not work on that which never fades, but actually Scripture tells us becomes brighter and more vibrant? Let us embrace that. So boys and girls, know that God designed you perfectly. You are exactly how God designed you. And God is perfect. No one could design you better than God designed you. No one could give you more value and make you worth more integrity than how God has created you in His image. And the truth is, is that image of God in us is broken, and it is only restored in Christ And contentment with who we are as human beings is only restored in Christ. It's not enough that we just do things while our example as Christians must be above reproach. It doesn't start there. It doesn't end there. We all have disordered thoughts that are a result of the fall. The image of God is distorted, but it is restored in Christ where we can find true satisfaction and contentment because we have know that we have been accepted not on account of our failed attempts of good, but we have been accepted by a Heavenly Father because of His Son. And all that flows from the curse, disordered thinking, discontentment, is restored only in and through Christ. So I end with this, the solution for the current crisis is the same solution that you hear every single Sunday because I only know one message, and that is this. Christ fulfills the need perfectly. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and that in Him we are accepted, not by who we are, but by and on account of His righteousness. We thank you, Father, for how you have perfectly made us how you have designed us with value because we're created in your image. And Father, we know that that image is distorted after the fall. And so we thank you that it's restored in Christ. Give us a heart's desire for this current cultural moment that we may share that which will free people from their sin and their bondage of sin. And 
That is Christ and Christ alone. We pray this.